0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Ben Haddad. I'm a fellow here at uh, Hudson. Uh, I'm uh, very glad to have uh, all of you and our great speakers to uh, debate uh, the uh, ongoing NATO summit. Uh, And as you all know, it's obviously a great week a great successful week for NATO as uh, France and Croatia will face each other in the final of the World Cup. Um, But unfortunately, we're not here to talk about this. We're here to talk about more complicated issues. Uh, that have surfaced in the last couple of years, and especially in the last uh, couple of days uh, in this uh, in this tense and confrontational uh, NATO, uh, NATO summit. Uh, as you know, Hudson Institute is, uh, has always been committed to strong alliances, has always had a, uh, a footprint in uh, Europe, uh, used to have a, an office in Paris, and uh, we're very pleased to announce the, the release of this report today. Uh, called After the West, with a question mark, so don't get too frightened, (laughs) (laughs) a positive transatlantic agenda in a post-Atlantic age, trying to look at the the deeper trends beyond the the president personalities of uh, the leaders on both sides of the Atlantic and look at, you know, how uh, Europe and the United States can work constructively together to face uh, new challenges from terrorism, China, or old ones like a resurgence and revisionist. Uh, Russia. This is a report that I uh, co-signed with uh, a senior fellow, Craig Kennedy, and uh, Hannah Thorburn, who now works at the House of Representatives. So after the West, please find it on uh, on the website. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by a uh, a transatlantic uh, panel and a very uh, esteemed panel, uh, starring uh, on – all the way to the right, uh, Arnaud Dangean, who is a uh, member of the European Parliament and who was also, in his previous term, the, uh, the chairman of the uh, Defense and Security Subcommittee at the uh, European uh, Parliament, Peter Duran, uh, who is the president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis, a well-known expert on Europe and Russia here in Washington, D.C. Antonio Lopez-Estoriz, Histories, is also a member of the uh, European Parliament, a very uh, influential one in uh, in Brussels. Uh, I have here Rebecca Heinrich, my colleague from, uh, from uh, Hudson Institute that uh, you know, either from her writing at Hudson or from her very frequent appearances on uh, Fox to talk about security, military issues, uh, and foreign policy matters in, uh, in general. And I'm very honored also to have uh, Mr. Luzim uh, Basha, who is the uh, leader of the Democratic Party of Albania, but even more to our point today, who is the former f- foreign minister of Albania, the one who uh, brought Albania within NATO in 2009. Maybe let me start – I, I want to talk about the deeper issues affecting the transnational relations and you know, see uh, – talk beyond the, the question of uh, accounting and defense spending and look at the threats and look at how we can work together. But maybe uh, let's start with the very current issue that we're facing, which is the, the NATO summit that has been ongoing yesterday and today, and try to make sense of it. We've seen a lot of uh, dramatic headlines, a lot of contradictory statements for, uh, from many people. Uh, so, I thought maybe we could start with, with you, Peter, uh, to talk about this and, you know, have a sense of uh, your impressions of this summit and, uh, you know, beyond the headlines, how we should uh, think about it. Okay. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to,
1: to be here on this panel, uh, to share a few thoughts. Uh, it goes without saying that uh, I've always been a very big fan of the Hudson Institute. I'm very glad to be here uh, to speak, I and mean, I, I see a lot of friends and familiar faces in the audience today. Uh, I have to also thank the uh, Martin Center and President Jorinda for, for their leadership on you know, holding that banner of Atlanticism high, uh, particularly when it comes to a, a transatlantic context uh, in Brussels. That is harder to do. Uh, as many of you know, my organization, SEPA, we are Atlanticists, and we were founded under this ethos. It's part of our mission. It strikes me that right now in the transatlantic relationship, uh, Atlanticism is a lot like an old church where you go inside and uh, half the pews are empty, the other half of the uh, uh, people in the the church don't even believe in God anymore. They just come for the music or because it's a familiar thing. That is the challenge we face. And that's what's been emerging, I think, in Brussels. Uh, So when it comes to this Atlantic context for what the president was doing in Brussels and the kind of conversations we're having, I think it's important to look at three questions. And I'll do them very briefly. The first – the what, the so what, and what now. What do we do about it? I think the what is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's important to recognize the obvious, that the burden-sharing debate has been long in coming, and all allies need to keep their commitments. I think that's the overall message that the President was delivering. Uh, it's also important to look at, you know, what – the more of the what uh, – what are we talking about here? I think that too much of the focus on Germany or too much of the focus on going to 4% versus 2% gets us away from the real issue, the real what. And that is, NATO exists to defend Europe. And American interests and European interests are aligned. And because they're aligned, because we're talking about collective security, how much allies spend on defense and what they spend that money on matters to everyone. So it is a collective conversation. Uh, the so what is important also, because I think too much of the policy debate right now is broken. Uh, it, it really strikes me that everyone is on edge, nerves are high, and, you know, if there's one message, one message that I'd have to bring to this conversation, it, it, it is actually stolen from John Paul II, uh, be not afraid. John Paul is, of course, stealing from Jesus himself on that one. But it's a good one to think about on this theme of churches and, and what, we're, what we're really believing in these days. Be not afraid is the one message I would bring. Because when we look at what will come out of this summit, it's actually quite a positive story. We're seeing broad base, across the board, commitments to increasing defense spending. We're seeing a real coming to terms with uh, Russia as a threat to the alliance's territorial integrity, we're seeing the United States and President Trump himself committing to uh, the communique that recognizes the illegal and uh, annexation of Crimea and commits to never accepting that. This is an incredible marker that the United States has put down, and it throws a lot of cold water on folks who were concerned that we might have a fire sale giveaway with the Russians in Helsinki. Now, we still might have that. My point is, is that we, we have a strong alliance here. And so far, so good. So then, what's this, what now? What do we do about it? Uh, I think it is actually a good thing that we can have an honest discussion among friends but it, uh, when it comes to the alliance. But I do think that Germany needs to get a lot more positive credit for what it has done. Angela Merkel has, to her credit, Increased defense spending in Germany made these pledges. To, I should say made these pledges to increase defense spending in Germany even before the Brussels summit. I think going to 1.5% is a remarkable thing. I think the German Bundeswehr absolutely needs to channel that money into readiness. Right now, it is embarrassing to have a NATO ally that cannot have 50% oper- that only has 50% operational readiness on its tanks. Let's let's use these in defense increases and channel them into something that matters. Uh, So recognizing that Angela Merkel is in a tight political corner, and she's doing a very good job given a very weak political hand, I think that deserves a lot of credit. It shows a commitment. And and I'm actually encouraged by what has come out. Uh, I think if there is any way that we can build on what we have, I think the tone of the policy debate needs to be turned way down. I think the, the the nerves that folks are you know bringing to these discussions are very 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 rattled. I think we would all benefit by remembering that you know if Atlanticism is a church, we need to get out of the church and go actually start taking that message to folks who maybe don't believe in it. Uh, that includes Americans here in the United States, and that is the one context that Europeans must understand. When we're talking about NATO, when we're talking about burden sharing. There is a debate that's taking place right now in America. And that debate is, why should we spend money on Europeans if they won't spend money on themselves? And now, after Brussels, the message can be Europeans are increasing their contributions to their own defense. That matters. And we are in this together. That's a positive message. And it allows Atlanticists like myself here in Washington to actually say, you know, use facts instead of rhetoric to defend our commitments
0: in Europe. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, let me uh, let me follow up on that. Uh, so this question that you mentioned that is very uh, present in the American debate, and obviously that President Trump made a, a central piece of his campaign. Why should we spend money on European security, defending Europeans if the Europeans are not ready to defend themselves? I want to ask this to. Arnaud, do you think the president has a point on this burden sharing is not a new conversation obviously you know Barack Obama talked about free riders when he talked about France and the UK after Libya uh, does do, do Europeans share a, a part of responsibility on this and what could they do more in this respect? I agree with what uh, has just been said.
2: Uh and we'll come back to that later. I think one, one important question which has not been addressed by the headlines of this uh, summit coverage was uh, Precisely about what, what to do, uh, increase spendings it's good for better sharing and everything, but what is the NATO mission in the world to come? because the, the, we, we, we see a, a very deep uh, change in the, in the surrounding uh, environment security environment of, of Europe, uh, so we really have to, to ask ourselves uh, what do we do together in the future uh, coming back to this uh, question of the spendings um, I mean, it was not a new message from the US. The way it was put by President Trump is new, uh, very brutal. Uh, I think too much. I think it's irritating. Uh, And he says he's delivering on that, well, it's for domestic audience. Because frankly speaking, all the EU uh, member states budget have been uh, on the rise since 2014, much before uh, uh, Trump was elected. So uh, I think uh, we have to, to be serious about that. Uh, the, the commitments in Germany, in France especially, uh, were uh, before uh, Trump. So uh, uh, I, we know that is the way he's dealing. He want, he wanted uh, success for domestic. And every time he engages in such uh, uh, heated debates, he wants to, to have uh, a victory to claim. So here we are. But uh, frankly speaking, the trend is there for, for and it was, it, was, uh, it was, of course, Ukraine uh, war that uh, led uh, many Europeans to, to change their, their mind about defense spending. But the real question is, uh, uh, there are two questions, to spend more to do what? And is the debate on spending not hiding a more uh, um, problematic debates, even uh, domestically for some European countries? To such an extent, I would say, in a provocative way, maybe the Germans could spend 5% in defense. But would they be ready to engage more because of the constitutional system, because of the uh, political tensions? I mean, the, what the, the, uh, we're in a coalition in Germany, and the SPD stands on, on, on use of military force, has come backward, I would say. We have, it has more to do with the traditional pacifist way in the 80s than, than, than the uh, engagement that we have seen uh, over the last two decades. So this is a, a real issue. The second thing is uh, to do what? Um, and I, here I find something disturbing in, in Trump's approach, because he would ask the Europeans to spend more to face a threat that he considered non-existent. Uh, so why should we defend, uh, spend more if it's to face a threat that the US don't consider, I mean, Trump uh, doesn't consider as uh, really serious? So it's, is it not uh, uh, preparation, uh, preparatory work for a disengagement whatsoever? And where are the, so where are the threats? So, if the threats are elsewhere, let's say in the south, southeast, uh, extremism, terrorism, fine. But what I see is the most challenging threat we, we faced, apart from the uh, Russia uh, was over the last two, three years, uh, ISIS uh, in the Middle East, and we confront militarily ISIS with no NATO involvement. So, you know. Here we have some question to be raised, and one last point. Uh, sorry about that, but uh, um, this debate about spendings and about uh, transatlantic uh, tensions uh, is totally hiding a very serious debate we should have on the consistency in terms of values of the NATO uh, related to Turkey. And I find it extraordinary that this NATO summit comes a few days after uh, Erdogan's re-election with a much more assertive Turkey, with a very problematic angle there, and nobody addresses this. But it will play a role in the future when you talk about the consistency of the alliance when we have to face new challenges.
0: Thank you very much, Arno. I think you raised two very important points, which is the consistency, as you say, in terms of values, and in terms of threat perception between both sides of the Atlantic, and and, and it leads us to to ask the question beyond the, the institutional accounting question of transatlantic unity. Uh, and and this, by the way, leads me to mention something I forgot to to say uh, when I uh, launched this uh, this panel, which is that. Uh, this this public panel is in the um, uh, in, a, in a broader conversation that we've had for the last uh, two days with our partner, uh, the Wilfrid Martin Center, which is the think tank of the European Popular Party in Brussels, and IRI, the International Republican Institute. It's a conversation that we have every year in Brussels and in Washington. We always open a, one of the panels to the public. And, and we start with the assumption that despite our differences in values and political systems, sometimes in threat perception, uh, transatlantic unity is the core. Of, of our civilization and, our, and our sec, of our security and defense. And this is one, what I want to ask to our uh, next speakers, uh, keeping in mind, obviously, the, uh, the background of the NATO summit. But uh, are we at a turning point? Are we at a moment when, uh, actually, the two sides of the Atlantic are going to shift away in terms of values, in terms of perception of threats, and NATO is going to be maybe an obsolete, as uh, President Trump once called it, even though that quote was often taken out of context? Or, uh, or just a, a secondary uh, instrument. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Rebecca.
3: Sure. Um, <clears throat> just a few, few points. I thought your remarks were great, and, I, I, and you actually hit on a point that I wanted to uh, emphasize, and that is the what I see as a larger problem within NATO is not so much the commitment to defense spending or collective security. It is a that is just a. Um, that's derivative of a larger problem, which is a disagreement or a lack of consensus about the threats and the priority of the threats that face the alliance. Um, I, I couldn't help but but think, um, as I sort of watched the last couple of days unfold, the President really um, given Angela Merkel a hard time, which I actually think she deserved it. Um, but, uh, but, but but a lot of people who, who aren't as familiar with the sort of um, the nuances of NATO, Begin to think that that she represents in Germany represents all of NATO, which of course is not true. I just spent a week in um, in Romania, and <sighs> talking about Black Sea security and what the Russians are doing um, to militarize the Black Sea, and what our uh, Central European, Eastern European uh, NATO allies are, are are trying to do to try to save that off and deter a lot of what Russia is doing in that region. They have a much different perception about the threat and the the immediacy of what we need to do to deter that from from getting out of hand than than some of the uh, more Western European countries. But especially, Germany is unique in that Germany you know, and I try to remind people, you know really, history has gone on before President Trump. History did not begin with Trump. you know, and and people i've I've seen a lot of pearl clutching about, oh my goodness, President Trump is going to destroy the alliance. But really, what he's doing is he's exposing a lot of these fractures that have existed long before he came along. and 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 part of what has been going on with Germany is Germany has really seen itself more as an arbiter between East and west, um in my view, than really, really kind of hugging in and, 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 and um, hugging sort of the Western view that, that Russia is a threat. So when you talk about a little nervousness that President Trump hasn't been more outspoken in talking about the threat from Russia, Germany has had a major problem in this regard for years. The Russians, and I, and I can't help but just kind of tick through just what the Russians are doing, because I don't want to assume that everybody is on the same page. I did the same thing whenever I spoke in Bucharest, just to make sure. Everybody was on the same page because it was full of NATO members being you know, represented there. And not everybody um, has this, the same view. But um, R- Russia not only threatens its neighbors um, and threatens to, to rewrite borders that are internationally recognized. Um, Russia has been threatening um, our, our NATO allies with nuclear weapons, um, flying dual-capable aircraft near, just touching right along NATO airspace. Um, the rhetoric on on, uh, on the use of nuclear weapons has increased. They're they're investing more in nuclear weapons. Um, Uh, and um, we can talk about what what they did to interfere in the US election, but many of our allies have been dealing with this disinformation campaigns coming out of Russia Russia for years. They've been dealing with this very same problem. Um, So they're feeling the heat there, and that is not the same heat that's being felt in the rest of Europe, which causes a a different perception about what they need to commit to, to their defense budgets. And then on the other side, you have a different perception about the threat from Iran. So as the United States continues to hammer on the threat from Iran, you still see European allies trying to save what's left of the JCPOA, the Iran deal, by keeping the Iranian regime afloat. Meanwhile, a lot of what we are saying needs to be done for defense and collective security is in response to the missile threats from Iran, when the Iranian regime is being enriched by many of our European allies. So. Um, and then you can talk about the migrant problems and, and terrorism et cetera so uh for me um NATO is indispensable for peace and security, not only of europe but for but for the world frankly and um it is it is not only you know, I think there's a misconception that NATO is there just to protect Europe. It is squarely in America's interest for the peace of Europe. That is our primary trade partner, the European Union. The reason the European Union has been become so rich is because the United States trades with the European Union, um, and it's not just about trade. It has to do with shared values and our shared history, et cetera. So, but but it's it's we need to have a better, more common understanding of the shared threats. Um, and and then from that we need to have a, a you know a, a really heart-to-heart conversation we need to continue about what that means of our european allies i think the two percent um is a is a is a relatively useful measurement simply because two percent as a percentage of gdp really just shows the um the 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 political will of those particular countries to commit to their own security um, and, and so I, I appreciated something that Secretary Mattis said months ago when he, he went to NATO. You know, a lot of people think that, that Mattis is sort of the adult in the room that moderates Trump. If you listen to what Secretary Mattis says, so much of what he says foot stomps and underscores what President Trump says. One of the things he said to NATO was, NATO, you can, we, Americans cannot care more about the future of your children than you do. Future security of your children than you do something something to that effect, and that's what that two percent is really just sort of a, a a marker of. Is Lithuania and and you know Czech Republic and all of these smaller nations are they ever going to contribute to the same degree that some of these larger economies are to to our military um, or to our military capabilities? Absolutely not. Which is why we generally talk about burden sharing generally, and there's other ways that you can help carry that burden. Um, and then my last point, I would just say too, uh, I think it would be more helpful. I think it's okay as a matter of sort of top line when you're talking in public to talk about two percent, just as a sort of a marker indicative of the overall political commitment you have to the to the alliance. Um, but I think when you get into these internal discussions, we really need to flesh out what that what that money is being spent on. I would prefer um, some more of that money just being spent on what what the United States is already doing. Um, um, in terms of our military deployments in the region, our joint military exercises, um, that sort of thing. I don't need, you know, we, we, we don't need everybody um, buying, you know, not everybody needs to have their own military, you know, forces and equipment there. There's other ways that you can contribute to the efforts that are already ongoing. Um, and then... Uh, You know, and I can go on to the other ways that NATO countries have been contributing to to security, apart from even that percentage-wise, but you you know a lot of that in terms of their commitment to the war on terror, um, committing actual lives uh, of their own people um, to that effort um, is something that is important and should not be forgotten as we talk about this.
0: Thank you, uh, thank you very much, uh, Rebecca. I think you make a fantastic point on on Romania and the fact that we shouldn't, you know, overfocus on Germany. We have other partners. I mean, Craig Kennedy and I were last week in the Baltic states, and um, it, it's fascinating for many respects. I mean, first we, uh, do, when you go to Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, who were occupied by the Soviet Union have, for half a century, you understand that the Russian threat is not abstract, it's not conceptual. It's just on the border, and you know, when uh, when uh, Russia annexed Crimea and started pretexting the protection of uh, uh, Russophone population. These are countries that understand exactly the kind of threat they can represent. We're very grateful to be within the alliance, to have the uh, the reinforcement that came from uh, European and uh, European countries and the United States. We're also, uh, you know, beyond being committed NATO uh, partners, spending more than two percent of their uh, GDP on defense. Are also proud members of the European Union and and you know, uh, really making a strong, impassioned case for. Uh, transatlantic unity. So I think it's, it's important to remember and to go there and remember this is not abstract. And it's not only about accounting. It's really about you know, uh, independence for a lot of these countries.
3: And if I could just add <laughs> one more thing to that, too. It just just as an example, because I think it kind of gets lost in the conversation sometimes, an example of some of the, the um, Poland and Romania that have really stuck their necks out for, to show their commitment to the alliance and to the United States, frankly. Um, that vote at the UN when the United States moved our embassy to Jerusalem uh, and, and Nikki Haley talked about how we're keeping a list we're keeping track of who who she didn't even need people to vote in the affirmative that the United States was right in doing so she was looking at just at just abstaining from condemning the United States for making that sovereign decision Romania and Poland and that could go on to the other countries that did that that came at a political cost for those countries that did that and um, and that should be appreciated and I think that those are the sorts of things that the United States government is even looking for, just in terms of um, um, uh, a sense of fraternity and support among the alliance members.
0: No, absolutely. You made another point that I strongly agree with, and that, once again, we repeat in this <laughs> great report, uh, <laughs> that uh, we shouldn't focus too much on, on President Trump himself. And he is more the, the symptom, the continuation of deeper trends affecting uh, both sides. And, and we have to be able to think, uh, beyond this, and, and this is, Antonio, what I want to uh, ask you, I mean, right now we have a, uh, uh, an American president who is very unpopular in Europe, I think, everywhere. There are debates in Europe about maybe focusing more on European defense, on European autonomy, on what, you know, what should Europeans do, uh, I would say even in the long term, beyond uh, beyond Donald Trump. Um, I think I'm going to make your work easy.
4: I'm going to resume my intervention in one phrase. Leadership has a price. Um, I come from Spain. Finally, the Spanish, we came into terms that, not like others, by the way, in uh, some country in European Union, that we realized that our empire was over. The the ironical thing is that during the whole time of the uh, Spanish empire, which stretched from the Philippines to Peru to the Netherlands, Spain was a very poor country. In order to maintain that empire, Spain had to pay to the bankers. So the country was very poor. If you study Spanish history, while we were holding this amazing empire, where the sun was never setting down, it was terrible for Spain in the mainland that's why so many people also were going outside of spain the conquistadores and so many others that was the real reason i don't say that there is an american empire but there is a leadership something maybe different in historical terms you want to do it you want to be the leader or not <coughs> i am a secretary general of dpp i am in charge of finances I usually, there is an unconscionable theory that always I get it right, is that those most committed members to the EPP are the ones that they pay <laughs> in time. You have to pay to be a member of the EPP. All our member parties, Lucien, you know that. Huh? And it's not cheap, and I have many complaints. <laughs> but those who, those who pay half are always the most problematic. And the ones that they pay in time and the full amount, I never hear from them. They are very, you know, I mean, it's something, you know. I don't know. In that, I say, President Trump is right. Yes. Yes. But what is the image we are giving outside? What our enemies are thinking right now about these discussions? I leave that question mark. Maybe people here are much more expert than me you know I'm sure they can tell me what are the yeah, the Iranians true the, uh, the and others thinking right now while they're hearing these discussions about millions and so on are they thinking maybe leadership is over maybe this is the beginning of the end question mark and I think it's an important one. I would agree with Hano that uh, the content of the presidents demands are right but maybe not the form on how this is being implemented One thing is to discuss about the price of hotels you know you want to buy or sell and the other thing is you know when you're talking about global security and global leadership. I know. I understand that he is introducing a new way of negotiation in the global table. Will this work? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> in my work for hotel business, which I'm also familiar with, but I don't know if this will work uh, in uh, in this kind of you know uh, international you know negotiations because it's not the same at the end. There are consequences of all this and this is what terrifies me maybe maybe we'll go <coughs> sorry maybe we will go well maybe you know president will have his two percent uh, I, I, I help on that in Spain I uh, I transmitted this to previous government physically I told and uh, you know I after a conversation with the uh, with Buchanan the, the, the American ambassador and I'm helping on that. Spain has to also have its commitment. That it has. We have uh, fighter planes and troops in Latvia and I don't know where else, and uh, in Tunisia, and um, you know, like many others. But yes, I have asked publicly and privately, you know, uh, to the government to do its commitment. Um, I cannot talk for the new government, Socialists, the kind of government from those kind of politicians in Europe, than during years have been trying to uh, diminish the uh, defense capabilities and the spirit of defense of the European Union. I have to say that thanks to the demands of President Trump, we are now discussing really about defense in Europe. Thank you for that. In two years, we have uh, implemented or we have reformed EBSCO, the European Defense uh, Fund. The, uh, we have now an annual agreement, uh, review of defense spend. Uh, I mean, things that we didn't have, as I said the other day, for 25 years. We never had any discussions about defense. The European left didn't want this pacifist also and, and uh, all this bunch that we never know who financed them, by the way, in the past. Uh, so uh, yes. Yes, I think for someone that believes in that, I think that that was good. But again, I just leave the question, and uh, I don't know if other people will agree with me or not. Let's see what is, you know, at the end, the consequence of this. I would rather prefer that this would have done in a more, let's say, not European way, no, in a more diplomatic way, mm? with pressures. There are channels, there are ways of doing these things without alerting the whole media. I'm terrified that now politics is done by Twitter. I have to get used to as a politician. This is, you know, now what it's trending, and I cannot go against it. This will go in the future. But I was used to other ways in this kind of particular things relating to security, to do it through other channels. I don't know if talking about security and defense through Twitter is also the way. Time <coughs> will tell us. Tell, time will tell us if we are not giving enough information for others to think on how. And you know that there are a lot of people out there who want to destroy <laughs> us and our way of living. And what do we represent? Sorry, Benjamin. Over.
0: Uh, thank you very much. Uh, let me turn to Lozim. Uh, I think Rebecca made the very important point that uh, we should you know, have a more uh, global view and, and remember the different members of, uh, of the alliance. Um, you come from a recent member that you were instrumental in bringing Albania within, within NATO. Um, so once again, as I was saying, I think you know, the, uh, belonging to the alliance is not something abstract. It's not, you know, I think it's, it, it's not a given for a, for a country like Albania, so I'd be very interested in, in hearing your perspective, especially coming from a region that is a theater for competition of influence by uh, great powers. Uh, I'll just, you know, ask you the, the question that Antonio just asked, where are, where are going to be the consequences?
5: Thank you, Ben. Um, as you said, I come from a small country and uh, a region that has been more at war than at mm-hmm. peace, and uh, that is considered the uh, default line between east and west. So from our perspective, but I'm sure also from the perspective of other countries, not just the Baltic countries, any discussion about the transatlantic cooperation and the future of NATO should face some fundamental facts. First, in my view, there are clear and present threats that make NATO as indispensable as ever. Since the end of the Cold War, these threats have not disappeared, they have merely changed. First, there are clear military threats at our doors. This was proven by the Russian aggression in Georgia, which I would consider the starting point, then the annexation of Crimea, the proxy war in Ukraine, and other proxy wars. In particular, countries in the eastern monster flank of NATO are under permanent military threat and military pressure. The Baltic Republics, And I would not exclude the Balkans. These countries have a fundamental and critical existential need for NATO's protection. Uh, Second, there was talk here for new types of threats. Terrorism, violent extremism, cyber attacks, Corruption, organized crime, transnational, criminal networks and money laundering, propaganda and disinformation campaigns whose aim is to destroy our system of values. Because we are primarily an alliance of values. We are a political military alliance, not a military political alliance. Our societies are under threat. Our values are being threatened threatened by non-military interventions. And these threats and these attacks weaken our societies by undermining democracy, rule of law, public trust, and social values, quintessential transatlantic, transatlantic values. I believe NATO can play a fundamental role in protecting from such threats. I could also put that as a question. Do you believe NATO can play a fundamental role in protecting against such threats? And if not, who can? I believe, and this is what we adhere to when we brought Albania into NATO 10 years ago, that NATO is a fundamental contributor for democracy, fundamental Western institutions as human rights and liberties, democratic elections, and free markets. Third, talking about markets and economy, there is a need to counterbalance increasing power and economic interventionism by non-Western countries, which are fighting for economic and political dominion in Europe, in particular in regions like my own in the Balkans, where, as you said, Ben, it's a stage of rivalry between East and West. On one side, we have Western countries, and on the other side, we have Russia, China, and other countries vying for political, religious, and cultural influence and economic penetration. I believe NATO can and should serve as a counterbalancing force to guarantee peace, stability, and democracy in this region and in other regions. In the Balkans, NATO has a clear advantage to address the threat at the source. We are a member of NATO, Albania is a member of NATO, Montenegro is a member of NATO, Macedonia received the invitation to become a NATO member, Kosovo clearly wants to join if given a chance. This puts NATO at a unique position and gives all the necessary leverage to address the threats at the source, in particular when it comes to ethnic conflicts, religious extremism, Islamic extremism, organized crime networks, and state capture. My second point is that, given these threats, which are real and present, commitment to NATO must be real and unequivocal. Margaret Thatcher, pledging to strengthen NATO after the end of the Cold War, famously said, you don't cancel your home insurance policy just because there have been fewer burglaries at your neighborhood in the last 12 months. NATO is indispensable for the same reasons it was before, although the nature and the source of the threats have changed. To keep it serious, commitment is needed. And the most effective commitment is contributing in funds necessary to improve its infrastructure, which in many cases and in many countries is obsolete. Not NATO, but infrastructure is. Technology is. Armaments are to update, train the personnel, to contribute, to strengthen capacities, and as a result, to strengthen the power of NATO to accomplish its mission. Achieving the 2% target is not simply a commitment. I made it on behalf of Albania. I knew every other country made it. And I'm very happy that we have this news from the summit yesterday in Brussels, that there is this recommitment by by NATO leaders. And this is great news. It's great news. Regardless of the way it was achieved, we have achieved a great recommitment to the 2% threshold. For many big countries, this is a huge amount to pay. I realize this. And some of them genuinely believe that, uh, as we heard yesterday, also from Elmar, that the first priority to use such money is not NATO. In particular, an important alternative use of such amounts of money, international contributions, uh, in particular in development aid, development assistance. For example, Germany and Italy have invested billions of euros assisting my country throughout these past three decades. They have never stopped supporting us one single day. And this assistance is a real contribution to peace and stability. Let me put it very clearly. There's no doubt about that. But. It cannot be a substitute for NATO and for what NATO brings to Albania and other countries in the Balkans. It brings the guarantee for security and for stability, it brings security for investments, it brings assurances for political commitments. And if we know anything from history in the Balkans, is that Peace and security are always fragile and temporary, and to strengthen peace and security, NATO remains the primary indispensable mechanism. Any gap created by lack of attention or lack of involvement and engagement of Balkan countries by NATO will be filled, will be filled by not-so-friendly forces, not-so-democratic leaders that are not looking for stability, that are not looking for democratic values, that are not looking for peace in other countries. And such forces may be state actors, may be criminal organizations, or terrorist networks. At the end, any money seemingly saved by not investing more in NATO, and as a consequence weakening NATO's deterrence and counterbalancing powers, will lead to destabilization, will lead to problems. And fixing this will cost more than having invested in the deterring power of NATO in the first place. So this is really not a good trade-off. It's what the British call penny-wise and pound stupid. Mm. My third point is that NATO's unity is particularly important for small countries. When big guys spat, small guys shiver. So oh, This is very important from perspective of countries like mine. Strong ties. Unified stance, unified stance by the United States of America and the European allies are a must. NATO would undermine its power, both perceived and real, if there are divisions, if there are fights. You just raised the point, Tona. What, what are they saying about these arguments in Tehran? I could mention a handful of our other capitals where they may be analyzing what's going on in our family. So this does not serve the purpose. And it do, does not serve our biggest strength, which is unified position on the most important issues. This may not sound like a big problem for the big countries of our family. It's a really critical problem to small countries, to Albania, to Montenegro, to the Baltic republics. So recommitting to the same unified stance is just as important as funding for the strength of NATO. So, what I hope and what we hope is that the debate that started in the summit yesterday will lead to important changes because they are necessary and timely, and will bring all of the allies closer to make
0: NATO stronger. This is my two pennies about. What you asked. Thank you uh, so much. You made uh, many critical points. Uh, I'll just repeat one, that is, uh, NATO is first and foremost a political alliance and not a military one. I think that's very important, and others have have said so in in similar ways. First, I want to say that I'm very proud of this panel, because we've kept uh, on time, despite having three politicians on the panel, so that's pretty (laughs) impressive. I'm gonna open it in a couple minutes to, to the audience, but first I think we can have a, a conversation and see if some of the panels want to react to things they've heard. I think Arnaud, you wanna?
2: Yeah, I wanted to make three points, short points, uh, to react to what I just heard. To Tonio, I fully agree with Tonio. The form matters. The way you express things does matter, especially between allies. Uh, humiliating allies, it has a cost. So you will you will gain something maybe in the short term. But it it, it really uh, sow seeds of mistrust. Uh, and, and I think we, we should pay attention to that. Um, that was the right way to address the challenges we face. Uh, uh, I think we are coming to the end of an era, which was the immediate post-Cold War period, which was opened at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. When it was so critical at that time, here in the US, I think we still don't pay enough tribute, we Europeans and in the Western world, uh, to George Bush Sr., 41st, and Scowcroft, who designed the way we ended the Cold War. And it was very rightly done, wisely done, with the right tone, uh, not humiliating anybody, not the Allies. And we were not always agreeing on the status of Germany and all these things, uh, and, and never humiliating also. Uh, the Soviets at that time, and it paid. So I, it's a bit—I uh, would say—I uh, uh, think it's really uh, not the right way to, to to do things. Anyway, second point, uh, Tulusem, I, I I take your points, but uh, NATO is not just a military alliance; it's a political uh, and a community of values. Yes, okay. My point is Turkey. Then, do you, do I feel? Uh, community of values with Mr. Erdogan's uh, regime. That's a real issue. And it's not just an issue about values. It's an issue also of security interest. Because we, when we, if we want to engage NATO in the South and to confront some of the challenges you mentioned, will Turkey be on board? I'm not sure. The main threat for Turkey now is the Kurds. We have three NATO armies facing each other in Syria right now you have a Syrian village where you have the French and the US army on one side and the Turkish army on the other side. This is not a small issue. It is never addressed. Maybe it's better so, (laughs) but it does exist. So the community of values when it comes to uh, a new international order which is being reshaped, it's a tectonic change that we we are facing. Uh, This uh, definition of the community of values, this definition of the uh, liberal democracy orders, and so on, it it, it remains to be um, considered. Uh, And third point is, I would say, uh, please don't oversell NATO. Yes, NATO is indispensable when it comes to deterrence and collective defense. And this is a core issue. But When it comes to all the new threats you mentioned, most of them are coming from within our societies. Within our societies, who is contesting liberal democracies and so on? Farage, uh, Salvini are doing more against our liberal democracies than the Russians are doing. Of course, they are allying themselves somehow, and sometimes with money. But frankly speaking, national front in France, it has nothing to do with NATO, non-NATO, and NATO cannot address that. We will not solve that at NATO summit. But this is a real threat to liberal democracies. So there are many, many threats, existential threats, which are coming from within our societies. And if we start to say we have to deal with all these challenges and threats within the NATO forum, I don't think it's that relevant. So we, I think, and I think ultimately, it will not give NATO the values it should keep when it comes to the core issue, which is collective defence and deterrence towards uh, real military threats, which, as you correctly pointed out,
1: at our borders. Ben, can I jump in here because I think a very important point was made and you know in the interest of having a transatlantic conversation, I, this one has to be stated uh, I, I agree very much with with your perspectives on the molt the variety of threats that NATO faces and on the dual nature that NATO plays both as a political organization and as a collective security uh, body. Uh, that said, I would stress one point that there is one major external threat that threatens the bedrock of our alliance, and that is Russia. agree. More importantly, when you talk about the difference between external versus internal, that threat from Russia is internal to our societies. The United States was attacked by Russia politically when Russia attempted to interfere in the thing that makes us special, the thing that makes us better than Russia, our democratic system. Now, I believe that our system is stronger than the FSB, and I don't believe that uh, Vladimir Putin managed to change the outcome of our presidential election, but we were attacked nonetheless. If we focus on these internal nuances of X versus Y, and we forget the fact that the Russian Federation poses a territorial threat to the bedrock of this alliance, a territorial threat to the borders of our allies then we do ourselves a great disfavor. And I think what we're seeing right now is this dual nature conversation. Because on one hand, we have to hold NATO cohesion together. Otherwise, Vladimir Putin will exploit those cleavages. Rebecca mentioned that. Uh, on the other hand, we have to make sure that we have enough punching power on the front line and enough behind that that can rapidly reach any crisis point uh, in order to deter those uh, the threat that Russia poses. Right now, I think we have a long way to go in order to fully deter Russia. That's where this burden-sharing conversation comes up. Absolutely. The 2% threshold is not paying dues to a clubhouse. The 2% threshold is providing real capabilities that will make Russian war planners think twice before they ever try to threaten the alliance in the first place. If we can do that, then real deterrence has occurred. But we have to remember, this is not a a far-off thing. This is a real threat that affects our democratic systems. It's internal to us. And, and I think if we, if we miss that point, we, we do ourselves a disservice.
0: Does
3: anyone want to Yeah, if, if, I, if I may, um, just, a, just a couple quick points to just to footstomp what was just said about Russia. Um, and, and I think it needs to be said, too, that the United States under President Trump has been incredibly tough with Russia as a matter of policy. Um, you know, a lot of people focus on the fact that the president has been unwilling to openly, publicly, personally attack Vladimir Putin. But if you look at across the board what the United States done to try to shore up our deterrent gaps that have clearly been perceived by the Russians, um, we are – we are beefing up our nuclear deterrent by adding some low-yield nuclear weapons to our arsenal. That is specifically in response to the fact that the Russians have lowered the nuclear threshold, especially when it comes to our Eastern Central European um, allies. You know, and, and that was something that President Obama was unwilling to do, that's something that President Trump has been willing to do. Um, that's just one, one area, opening up energy markets so that the, so that the Russians don't have the ability to coerce and blackmail and put their thumb over our allies using energy. Uh, the Three Cs Initiative, that's something that the United States is firmly backed and behind, the president talked about when he was in Poland. Um, and so that's why the, the, the pipeline that, the, that Germany has, a, has um, agreed to incorporate with Russia has been such a flashpoint for the United States. It's not so much the, the, the amount of, of energy, or it's not so much you know, how much the Germans are, are um, enriching Russia, which is part of it. But really what that was is it undermines what the NATO alliance is trying to do in terms of breaking up the energy monopoly that Russia wields over our allies. Um, so that just that, that was a, one particular note, and 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 I would just I I, I am compl- very sympathetic to our European allies who say that the 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 tone of President Trump is so uncomfortable to, to some it's humiliating. Um, I, I would just say though that this has been coming for a long time. President Trump is he is a uh, manifestation of these problems kind of ongoing. Um, it is true that NATO has been agreeing to ramp up um, their commitments, but frankly, it's come very slowly. Um, and though President Obama did talk about this, he did it in sort of a tone that was more professorial and calm and diplomatic, but it didn't really um, have the effect that President Trump is having. So I fully appreciate it. I squirm when I watch the videos. <laughs> and um, and. Uh, but but then, on the other hand, there, there, there seems to be results, maybe just short-term and maybe there's going to be negative consequences that that is yet to be seen. I'm not willing to take a victory lap yet. I'm not willing to condemn the President of the United States either on the, on the way that he's going about this because I do think he's committed to the alliance. And my prediction has been, since President Trump took office, that by the time he's done with this, the NATO alliance is going to be stronger, not weaker. Um, and so far, that's holding up pretty well. We'll see by, by, by the end here.
5: This a short point on uh, taking wh- where Arno started from. Well, let's remember the European Union did not start at where it is today. It started as a project of peace and security between Germany and France by denying these countries individual access to coal and steel. The coal and steel union was the genesis of this wonderful project, which is the European Union. Why should we deny NATO the same evolution but now on a transatlantic scale, bringing together the entire community of Western values, which is European Union and United States and Canada, and the special relationship that we have with other countries such as Australia and Japan. And what other forum, what other platform is there to address the issue of threat, of of liberal democracy, of democratic values, of human rights and liberties? Why should we invest in inventing one when we have a successful one, such as NATO, that has proven itself over 50 years to be successful, and to upgrade from the collective defense dimension to a full-blown political alliance with a robust, tested, in need of constantly being updated military components. I, how can we deal? Is it better, would it, would it have been better to deal with the Syria pro- problem the way we did deal with it, or if we had dealt with it within the NATO context?
2: My question remains. You have Turkey on board. And with Turkey on board, you, there are some problematics you, I have you my cannot own, address.
5: Uh, I have my own very clear opinions on that, but uh, and we could discuss that in detail. But problems like that have existed and will continue to exist. If we have a framework, if we believe in these values, if we are committed to these values, there are no problems that cannot be addressed and solved, including the one that you mentioned.
0: Anyone want to add anything? Okay, great. Well, I think we have a good half hour for a conversation. Let's turn first to uh, our friend Roland Fernstein from the Martin Center in Brussels.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I'm Roland Feuenstein, uh, Policy Director of the Martin Center, um, the think tank of the center right in Europe. So I think a German voice is missing in this debate. Uh, <laughs> so let me make a try here. Uh, coming back to the um to the form defies function debate. Uh I, I just a short remark. I absolutely agree that uh it, it, taking Germany's example here. Um President Trump certainly gave, uh, the, it made, made it easy and maybe even inevitable for a defiant attitude in Germany. You know, if Germany's Social Democrats weren't so dismissive of the r- of domestic problems like migration, they would have a field day. You know, and this is the, the, just the president's cavalier attitude with facts and figures about Germany's gas dependency, you know the claim, what the wildly exaggerated claim that Germany is totally controlled by Russia. Um, what is seen in Germany as a pretty transparent attempt to peddle American deliveries, you know that's the way it's interpreted. You know, in all this, I mean, with, there's a German figure of speech which, uh, loosely translated, says. Um, you can tear down with your bum what you built up with your hands. I, I think I'm sorry to use these words, but that is unfortunately what's been happening. And the the reason why defense spending is going up, slowly or more quickly in other cases, uh, the jury's out whether that was Russian aggression or whether that was the, the president. Um, in any case, my question to you, Rebecca, is, where now? I mean, there's a sigh of relief among many people after the NATO summit has delivered more or less what was expected. Or well, what's going to happen in Helsinki next Monday? Mm. Uh, what is? Give us, give us a best and a worst case scenario. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I hate to speculate. I, I, I try not to. I try to. I try to. Well, I do speculate sometimes, but I try. I really shouldn't. Um, but. But here, this is what I would advise, what I would advise. As the, as the president um, uh, moves on, he, he's going to meet with uh, the British next. And then he's on to, to Russia to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin.
1: Pardon? He's on to Finland.
3: Yes, and Finland.
1: <laughs> Russia tried to make it Russia, but the Finns defended themselves. OK, yes.
3: But, but, okay. Good for them. Good for them. Um, and he'll be meeting with Vladimir Putin. So um, what I hope will happen. This is something that I I think that I am perceiving coming out of the Trump administration. And I'm basing this off of the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Strategy, the Nuclear Posture Review, those three major policy documents that came out of the Trump administration. And then the forthcoming, Lord willing, if it ever gets here, the Missile Defense Review, which will be the fourth one. I call them like, I think about them as Russian nesting dolls. I think that's a really nice illustration for how they work for American policy and defense and security. All of them point to the fact that Russia is a peer competitor, Russia and China, and that the United States has for too long gotten comfortable with this concept of parity. Parity is destabilizing. We're back in the game of looking for strategic superiority over our peer competitors. It clearly identified Russia and China. If you look at what President Trump has done, I find it so interesting that everyone is so quick to condemn the president for his soft or um, not tough rhetoric towards Vladimir Putin. And then they claim that all of this tough policy is somehow going on without the president's knowledge, which is ridiculous. Because he put all of his cabinet in place. He's signing off on these documents. He's putting the principles in place. And he he is an integral part of this process. All of it goes back to deterring Russia pursuing U.S. interests, the Space Force, friends, the Space Force will drive the Russians crazy. Um, and the Chinese, now I don't know if there's actually going to be a Space Force, but the idea that the United States is gonna be placing an emphasis now on regaining the strategic superiority in that military, and it is a military domain, is remarkable. And it's long overdue, and it's really to combat what's going on with Russia and China. So. If the United States uh, under President Trump continues to pursue these major policy shifts changes um, and does them and does not capitulate on them because I guarantee you President Putin just if he's if he continues to be the same guy that he's been for the last several decades is going to tell President Trump that he wants the United States to do what withdraw our missile defense assets from Europe Stop our NATO military exercises that he's going to call destabilizing and saber rattling, which, by the way, the Germans also call them that. Some of them. Um, you're going to want us to stop doing that, and then pull back what we're doing in terms of uh, modernizing our nuclear deterrent, specifically to counter to, to counter Russia. Those are just three of them, and then you've got Syria and all kinds of other problems. You know, but if if President Trump can not capitulate on those major fundamental areas in which it's going to actually drive U.S. foreign policy for the next many decades. Um, I'm going to be happy if he if if he looks at this sort of like near-term things that we can make deals with the Russians on or cooperate with them on anti-terrorism efforts, et cetera, et cetera, and the and the rhetoric is cool coming out of it, and we don't get to fire and fury with the Russians. Um, then, then that's okay. What I worry about are that the president, I don't I'm not really worried about, but I think worst case scenario is if President Trump goes into meeting with Vladimir Putin and is tempted like President Obama was to capitulate on the areas of which the Russians want the United States to capitulate on. So um, I, saw, I saw that under the Obama administration, the United States was deeply harmed and the Russians were very much emboldened to do a lot of what we're seeing today. And, um, and so, as long as President Trump can stick with what he's been doing, I think that that's, that's best-case scenario. Um, you, remember, you remember, it was it's under President Trump that, that Ukraine got this lethal aid to actually defend itself to some degree against the Russians, which was denied the entire time under President Obama. So.
1: Roland, from one more perspective there, because I think your question is good. Failure and success. In Helsinki, failure is uh, – failure looks like uh, an outcome where President Trump repeats the same mistake that President Obama made in the opening phase of his administration, frankly, the same mistake that President Bush made in the opening phase of his. It seems to be the curse of every American president to enter into office hoping that a little charm and charisma will change the fundamental strategic priorities of the Russian Federation. Every president since Bush has left office, perhaps even H.W. Bush, has left office realizing that the original plan didn't work. If President Trump Trump sticks to his current policy guns when he goes into Helsinki, and that means no interference in our Western elections, hands off Crimea, it's time to leave Ukraine, uh, and uh, we are an alliance that you cannot continue to rattle sabers at. You're right. The German press was hauling saber strike, a big exercise by NATO, uh, saber rattling while ignoring entirely the fact that last September, Russia parked 100,000 soldiers on our eastern NATO border and practiced attacking us with nuclear weapons. That's saber-rattling. And that's what ultimately, Ben, we're getting to with this question of deterrence and burden-sharing. If we can stick to our current track, if President Trump can stick to his current policies, we will be able to deter Russia. It is That's why I say be not afraid, because when you look at the policies and you look at what is happening right now, set aside Twitter, take a week, and just don't even look at Twitter. And you will find your brain cells regrowing and your insight into policy getting sharper. Uh, that's the nature of our broken policy debate right now. So set that aside and look at the policies. Look at what is real and matters and is on the ground. And if these trends continue, then we will have a safer and more secure alliance danger is that Vladimir Putin knows how to keep us bickering. And that's what we have to resist internally. And I, I think that's where that internal I- dimension comes
0: into play. Thank you very much. Uh, let's open. We have uh, two questions. Let's, uh, first, Paolo Rangel from the European Parliament, and then Anish Kivadze from Voice of America. We'll take both. And then... Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh,
7: it was really a rather interesting debate, and rather deep and uh, useful. I'd like to make three main points. The first is that I fully agree that uh, uh, expenditure in defense should be uh, really increased. And so I think that the efforts that the United States have done uh, till now are fruitful and good. And I believe that even the public opinion in Europe is today much more... uh, sensitive to the need of uh, investing in defense and security. In a certain way, I acknowledge that this uh, Trump style uh, also helped to do this. In a certain way, it helps. uh, That I can acknowledge. Uh, This being said, there's something that Rebecca said here that I think that cannot be accepted in any case, that is to demonize Germany. You said that Germany is between West and East. This is totally wrong. I can say it I'm Portuguese. I disagree with German every day about policies, but this is the most unfair assessment that I have ever heard. And totally unacceptable. Because Germany is totally committed with the transatlantic dialogue with the American values. You probably don't know Germany because Germans, they love America. They admire America. They are totally committed with America. And I can't even accept that someone says that Mrs. Merkel deserves a bad treatment. Nobody deserves a bad treatment, not even a criminal. But in the case of Mrs. Merkel, she is a totally pro-West leader. She had made a great effort. Then we can disagree. I I have uh, measured these agreements with some visions uh, 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 on Germany, but please, to demonize a country, and especially a country like Germany, where you have nothing to demonize about these issues of commitment with uh, uh, Western values, with democracy, with separation of powers, with uh, all these things, then you can say, okay. You have a surplus. You have a lot of money. You should invest more. We understand that in the 50s you couldn't. Now you can't. You, you must do it. OK, but we should not also forget that it was we, English, French, uh, American, that didn't want Germany to uh, have a proper army and a proper defense, because they were defeated in the Second World War. Of course, everything changed now. And they have this capacity. And we should uh, say that very well. But not to demonize Germany. Because when I listen to to you, Rebecca, it seems that Germany is the, uh, you are much, much tougher with Germany than with Russia. And then I'm I'm coming to my third point. That is a very, very important one. And uh, uh, that is this one. OK, Mr. Trump has policies that are very good. But Twitter is very bad. Uh, so please don't look at Twitter. But you forget that with Twitter, he is uh, interfering in the public opinion. And he, the, the impression that he gives to the public opinion is that Mr. Putin is something, someone that we should consider and respect, and Mrs. Merkel and Mrs. May, they should be respected. Farage is very good. Salvini is very good for Mr. Trump. Orban is very good. These people, if they were here in the States, they will be condemned because they don't respect the, the independence of judiciary. They don't respect the human rights. They don't respect the values of your constitution. And uh, what happens is that with this kind of messages, in a certain way, he is helping these people. I'm not saying that he wants to help them, but he's helping, in fact. So it's not neutral, the communication strategy. Please, you are political analysts. You are politicians, also. You know very well that communication plays a very important role. It's not only the policies. It's also the perceptions. And so this is not something that we can uh, uh, accept. So I I must say, I'm the most pro-Atlantic, because I'm Portuguese. So uh, for us, America, UK and America are the first uh, allies ever. In the case of, okay, since, our, uh, since 1140, uh, so uh, it's eight or nine centuries of uh, uh, with England of, of, of treaties and uh, collaboration, and uh, uh, after the foundation of uh, United States, United States are always there. But it's very unfair to, uh, to 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 have this 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 view on what is going on. So I fully agree with you. Probably. With Russia, these policies are more effective than a, a rhetoric without policies. But this rhetoric is also harmful. Don't forget that. And I'm going to say this is going to black, to, 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 to do a boomerang effect against the United States at the end of the day, this kind of attitudes.
0: Uh, let's just take another question and then we'll.
3: we'll can, can I gesture since that was directed towards me? Real quick. I'll be real quick. Um, A couple things about Germany. My complaints against Germany are only as it pertains to Russia. Russia is the number one geopolitical threat in the medium term, I mean China in the long term, towards towards the United States and NATO, specifically, immediately in terms of our Central European, Eastern European um, allies. And so my complaints of Germany are only as it relates to and pertains to how Germany has helped or hindered the alliance as it relates to Russia. Do you know how difficult it is to convince the Germans that the Russians are right now violating the INF Treaty? It's impossible. And it's not because they don't know it, it's because their head is in the sand. If you look at the Pew Research, they've done surveys over the last couple years at what the German population thinks about what the alliance and what the United States should or shouldn't do and what what the alliance should do in terms of helping Ukraine, it's pitiful. The Germans have had a a very low regard in what the alliance should do in terms of what the Russians are doing in redrawing internationally recognized borders. Okay, so my complaints of Germany, do I think that Germany is a vital part of NATO? Yes. But that's where my complaints run through. It is because I understand that Russia is the major problem. It's the alligator closest to the boat. And Germany has done a lot to harm that um, problem for, for NATO to actually try to solve that.
4: Hello, um what's the voice uh, of America. Um uh, my question actually I can follow I would follow up on that. When you talk about Russian threat and you talk Russia as an external threat, there is a topic that we are tired asking questions about and you probably are tired answering about and that's NATO enlargement. Uh, so when it comes to Georgia and Ukraine and more importantly Georgia, because Georgia is far ahead in reforms and it's like a plus student for NATO enlargement, do you think that Russia is maintaining effectively a de facto veto on the enlargement in the East and in these countries of the NATO, and what is your position on that, and how important is that for the unity of the alliance?
8: Thank you.
2: Um, well, that's answering this. Uh, I would like to make two points. The so first is after what Paolo said. We are elected member uh, of a parliament. Perception matters. I can stop Twitter, and I can read uh, uh, Trump's tweet with a uh, uh, distance and say there are policies and so on. For my constituent people, it does matter much more than U.S. policies. The sanction, uh, the U.S. sanction, treasury sanction on the Russians, oligarchs, it is very efficient. It is very tough. Uh, but um, what is felt on the ground in Europe among the population it's not that. It's, it's a rhetoric. It's the tweet. And it's a rhetoric which is alienating huge part of our public opinion. And which plays, and I fully agree with Paulo, which plays for the populist, which for, for the people who are aligning themselves with Russia on the agenda to destroy EU from inside and to destroy liberal democracies from inside. So here we have a problem. It's a political problem. It's not a problem about policies, foreign affairs and It's a political, deep political problem we face in Europe now. Each of our societies is facing this challenge. Each of our societies in the Western democracies is facing a rise of populism linked with external factors, also with with, uh, some names that were mentioned by uh, uh, Paolo. It's right. I mean, Salvini in Italy. Salvini. I'm sorry, Salvini. You made an alliance with someone who has spent four years in the European Parliament. He was our colleague, so we we were well placed to witness what he did and what he said and what he meant. Every time there was a foreign affair debate in Strasbourg, once a month for the last four years, he was intervening, blaming NATO, blaming the US, telling how Putin is a great leader, how we, we should reshape our alliances, every time. Maybe you n- never noticed that, and maybe he has a different speech in Italy. But he's my colleague. I was listening to him in, a, in an open forum. Nobody was listening. Twenty people were just present. But, but for four years, he has delivered the same message. And there was an article and an interview in the FT uh, this very Monday, and he was repeating that. He wants to reshape the alliance. He doesn't want to be part of NATO. He, doesn't want, he wants to make an alliance with Russia because he thinks Putin is a great leader. And he said something even more interesting I didn't get any lira, any rubble, or any euro from Putin, which makes a difference with other populists. It's ju- just ideological. It's even worse. This guy was not paid to say that he loves Russia. <laughs> he, he, ideologically, he believes that Russia is right. This guy is in our Western democracies, and is one of the most popular, and is, in, and is in the driving seat of one of the major EU countries. We have to understand that. This is something deep. This is something deep, dangerous, and this is something uh, we cannot just address like uh, nothing has really happened. Something is happening in our democracies. And we should, we, we should be aware of that. And everything that from this side of the Atlantic is fueling this rhetoric is very dangerous, and it's poisonous and toxic for the transatlantic alliance. Um, uh, yeah. The second point uh, is about the threat perception. I have been leading the French strategic review last year. I'm sorry, but uh, all the consultations we have, it's not only about Russia. We have 100 deaths in France and on European soil by l- jihadism. Right. And jihadism is a major threat. So I understand that it's not the major threat when you're in Latvia. It's the major threat when you are in France. We have to take that into account. I don't want to prioritize. I think we can treat both. I think we can consider that both threats are vital, and both threats needs to be addressed. But you cannot make as if it doesn't exist. And it's the same case for Germany. Germany has been hit by jihadism. So today, you cannot just make Russia, Russia, Russia. Yes, Russia, indeed. But there are other threats. There are other security challenges. And if you focus only about that, you will not have everybody on board. And that's a problem. So never, I mean, I'm strongly advocating in France for considering both. And I think we can tackle both.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: With the EU, with NATO, I mean, we can tackle both. But, uh, but from what I've been hearing for the last four days is, is only one-sided. Be careful. for our, Because it, it is linked with what I just said before. For our public opinion. If I go to my constituency and I say, Russia, 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 the guys would say, hey, guys, we have been uh, hit. We had 300 people killed by jihadists. Right. We have 20,000 radicalized people in our country, 70,000 across Europe and not only in France. Uh, this is a major threat, security threat, and the immediate one, and the perception is this one.
0: We had a question on NATO enlargement if Russia holds a veto on it. no, Peter, maybe, if you want to say something.
1: Absolutely not. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the nervousness about this uh, administration, but, you know, we have seen strong policy consistency between Bush, Obama, and the Trump administration on NATO enlargement, on open door, and uh, that has stood. Uh, Russia doesn't, absolutely doesn't have a veto. The issue now is for the alliance to come to terms with what kind of structure it wants. Does it want new members? And again, the road leads back to Western Europe and the uh, concerns that other Western European countries may or may not have, but this administration has been very consistent on open door. Do
0: you want to say something about enlargement
1: being
5: ultimately a, process, a political process of reforms? You first, have to be functioning democracies, with strong rule of law, and then, of course, reform their armed forces. It's not uh, this is not uh, 1945 anymore. It's not just a collective defense. It's uh, an alliance of values. So much more emphasis must be put into internal reforms, both in Georgia and Ukraine. Of course, uh, the Balkans, Albania, who we fully support, full membership of Ukraine and Georgia, and the summit of 2008 has made that commitment black and white.
0: Um, Let's take, so we have a question here, and then we have a question in the back. We'll take uh, both at the same time. Uh,
8: Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Ines Weider. I'm a member of European Mm -hmm. Parliament. I come from Latvia, although in documents it's written differently. I'm come from Latvia, so and I would like also to say some words. Although um, there will be next panel where I will uh, also be between you as a panelist, so about Russia. So I followed very um, with a big uh, attention uh, today's press conference live uh, Trump's press conference, and so my impression was probably a little bit different from. Uh, some of us, uh, I heard these good messages uh, because um, after the, I, I looked at in CNN, uh, reporter said after this press conference that Trump um, announced victory over his partners. I think it's absolutely unfair. He said very clearly, we came out stronger. And that's, I think, that's very important. That's what Trump really said. And I also would uh, ask, uh, not probably to really to look uh, and to listen to his expressions, but to his deeds. And I will talk about Russia, I will talk a little bit more in the next panel. And uh, Arnaud, I think uh, we really talk about both threats, but um, uh, president's meeting with uh, Russians president is approaching. Probably that's why we talk more on Russia, I think. I think Russia is an important topic. And uh, what I can uh, give as a credit to the president, really these – talks about 2% about our commitments to NATO have really uh, com- becoming better. And I I don't think if um, this diplomatic way uh, what uh, Obama proceeded would be continued, I, I am not certain that European countries would increase our input. I'm not certain that we would be so successful establishing PESCO, uh, European Defense Union, Uh, even I come from budget committee. We will spend in um, next multi-annual financial um, framework uh, 20 billion in uh, frameworks of, of defense. We are speaking about structural changes in our defence system, now we are 28; will be 27 states with a very different spendings, with a very different types of uh, weapons, etc. Now we are talking about this, and I think very strong European pillar for NATO is a very important. And I would really give a credit to President; he really pushed it. Of course, it matters how he e- expresses but uh, uh, we would like to teach him how to express but I'm not certain that we will be very effective because he didn't hear us Uh, and I think we have to live with him as he is and uh, probably your task your American's task is just to try to convince him that probably sometimes this expression way also matters but um, uh, yeah you know and I'm thinking about his character and we have to taking account the choice of Americans. He chose the president as he is, and um, this is a way how he speaks to his people. And um, also, I will speak about Russia. He was very diplomatic today about what he will achieve in Russia, and I think this is a very clever way. Um, again, excuse our. No. But I remember how President Macron came to the uh, United States, and he announced very clearly, "I will try to convince the President not to step out of the climate uh, treaty, etc." Achievement zero. Probably better not to say what exactly I expect from this, taking account that behind Putin there is also a big and self-confident nation. That's that's. Uh, I'm thinking probably we have to be a little. If the President Trump is not diplomatic, we have to be diplomats and we have to accept also his way. And uh, actually, being Latvian, I'm very thankful to the United States for protection. They are there. They are in Latvia. They are protecting us. Uh, I don't think we would be members of European Union if not American support. That's that's my perception. Thank you very much. And uh, Barbara, I read probably my English is only my fourth Foreign language, probably I didn't understand why Merkel deserved it. Did I understand you right? You said Merkel deserved it.
3: Well, I, I mean, I'm. I, I okay, when, thank you. When President Trump, when President Trump was really tough on what the Germans were doing, especially with the pipeline, the new pipeline, I thought that that was, I thought that that was deserved. Everybody in the room thinks this, thought that. I don't want to put their own thoughts in their mind, but okay, okay. well, we, no, not, no, not this room. The room that Trump was in, that President Trump was in. Everywhere there's lots of lots of Europe opposes that pipeline. The Three Seas Initiative, of which the United States backs and supports, the whole purpose of that is to diversify energy and and prevent Russia from having the ability to put its thumb over over Europe which is exactly what that pipeline does. It circumvents a land path through, through our allies to be able to allow direct energy to Germany from Russia. So when the president brought it up, I understand it makes everybody, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It made, I mean, it's uncomfortable. Um, it, it also happens to be true, and, uh, and it, was opposed, it was opposed privately numerous times by previous American presidents, and it fell on deaf ears, and it received no attention. President Trump is basically grabbing her by her shirt collar and saying it. I I, I I know that it's not diplomatic. The American people elected a man from New York. <laughs> this is a property developer. So so this is his this is his this is his style of dealing. It it may not work in the end. Businessman. Uh, pardon me?
4: Hotel
1: businessman, yes.
3: Yes, it, it, it might not work. But it appears to be having some near-term, some,
1: some short-term um, results. Correct. And let's think about this, because Trump made history yesterday. And to my knowledge, he was the first American president to ever talk openly about the schroederization of German policy, of uh, German making. This, this was, and he did so at a NATO summit, no less. <laughs> was- that was a remarkable movement in uh, the U.S. policy approach towards the endemic problem uh, that Russia uses. It uses the energy space as a vector of malign influence to pollute our democratic policy discourses. It's happening right now in Germany. Now, the good news is that, of course, Germany is not captive to Russia all of the Cold War, mm-hmm. obviously. The bad news is that right now, in Germany, the policy discourse is captive to Russian-sponsored propaganda that advances Nord Stream 2, and Germany has to come to terms with this. The United States policy has been very consistent on this, and I take heart from the fact that we can have an open discussion about how Russia is trying to pollute our policy discourse on something that matters to the lives of every European, and that's energy security. Uh,
0: yeah, and, and I mean, just also you know, following up on this, I mean, I, I think whatever you think of Donald Trump, he has an uncanny talent at showcasing his opponents' hypocrisies and taboos. And I think that, you know, that was a major part of his campaign. And, and I think that's also what we're seeing in this, this NATO summit with uh, the focus on Nord Stream 2. Uh,
2: Ines, just two points. The first one is I don't understand why we should be indulgent with Trump style and, and with Trump putting, uh, like, very bluntly his objectives, like, I want this 2%, blah, blah, blah and ah, oh, that's fine, because, and, and when Macron comes and said, I will try to convince him not to pull out of the, we should blame Macron, I mean, uh, we, we should be indulgent with Trump, but not with our own leaders. I mean, that's something I don't understand. Uh, the second point is, uh, you're right. Trump's rhetoric and the, the way he was pushing um, uh, and criticizing the Europeans led the Europeans, to go further and to go probably deeper in uh, in defense policy change than they they have done previously. But it tells a lot not about Trump. It tells a lot about us. The fact that we had to wait for an American president to wake us up, and we were not able for five, six years, because all the security challenges were there before. Arab Spring two ta- 2011. Ukraine 2014. Um, a massive terrorist attack 2015. We had time to wake up, and we didn't. Uh, and we had to wait for Trump to, uh, to lecture us, to, and very bluntly, to, to take decisions. Uh, you're right. We took decisions, and it took too much time. But it tells a lot about us. And we should ask ourselves, why are we unable, as Europeans, to consider to have a thorough look, strategic look at our environment and take the proper decision. This is what, to me, is striking and to me is very disturbing. And that's why my fear, if I prolong this, this uh, thinking, my fear is it might reverse. Because when Trump will not be there anymore, will we sustain our efforts? Mm-hmm. And from what I hear, paradoxically, from what I hear in this room, I'm not sure. Because so many people, would like to rely forever on the U.S. Whatever happens, that when Trump will leave, a lot of people would say, "Oh, let's go back to normal, to the comfortable zone where the U.S. are taking care of everything."
4: Um, I made um, <laughs> in my first intervention. I did not criticize. I did not comment. I made some questions. I believed to. Room full of experts. Still, my answer, my questions are not answered. But you know, it will take time. Um, are we aware of the consequences of this? I am not an authorized German voice. I come from Spain. Like Portugal is one of the countries, the only countries in Europe that we don't know, depend from the Russian gas. UK, huh? Uh, so maybe I have some authority because I'm not under anyone's influence. Mm? Uh, is, it, is it the right moment to go against Chancellor Merkel and Germany? Is it now the right moment? Has anyone thought about it? Are there other ways? Instead of putting Chancellor Merkel who's going through a difficult political momentum. And I suppose that some advisors of President Trump might have told him before going to the NATO summit. Who's waiting back in Germany? Alternative for Deutschland? Is that what you want? Sorry, I'm just, you know. In these days, I know I'm, I'm becoming a little bit old-fashioned, because I, don't, you know, everybody thinks about the f- five minutes thing, tweets, no news, and so on. I- I'm thinking a little bit more, let's say, with uh, some distance, with some, uh, I don't know, huh? uh, is this the right thing to do like this? Maybe the aim, the aim is what? Maybe we have to shake consciences. Again, maybe we have to wait. These are wake-up calls. Yes, yes, are we aware? of the consequences, how we are doing this, what will be the consequences for German politics. My own country, Sánchez, socialist, imagine that. He said that he was going to commit. I was even amazed. (laughs) Oh, he's going to commit. The Spanish socialist, wow. But he was attacked by Trump also yesterday or this morning. So Sánchez now will go back. Spain is a democracy. Some of you don't know that because you know. He said that about the Catalan question that Spain is a dictatorship. that Franco is alive. No, it's a democracy. <laughs> and Sunset will go back to Spain and the parliament. And they are there waiting Podemos, the ultra left. Everybody is <laughs> sharpening knives. <laughs> was this, from a strategical point of view, a good thing to do? How it was managed? I don't think so. I understand. I understand why. I understand the aim. How it was done, I think that will have in the short medium term bad consequences. Please, next time can someone study a little bit, you know, when they have to do decisions that shake the world, that shakes European politics and other things, you know, can think a little bit
1: I only ask, you know, a little
4: bit more uh, about the consequences of all this. Thank you very much.
1: And Ben, Angela Merkel should absolutely get credit for what she has done to increase her defense spending at least to 1.5%. I think that deser- that absolutely deserves more credit, especially since she's done so uh, under such uh, difficult political conditions. And that, that point... And the sanct- it, while simultaneously upholding the sanctions on Russia for its illegal annexation of Crimea, that too is consistent with US policy. And, I, so if, and I, I'm seeing the sense that maybe Americans and Europeans are uh, talking past each other. Not intentionally so, but it shows the different vectors of our concerns. And if I, I, if we can find where that overlap on the Venn diagram exists as Atlanticist, I think we have to give credit where all credit is due, and I think Germany should absolutely, uh, particularly Angela Merkel and her uh, wobbly coalition, should absolutely get credit for uh, for increasing its defense spending. Uh, if there is room for constructive criticism, uh, that that's that's a good place to start. All
0: right. Well, I think we're going to end this panel on Angela Merkel deserves credit. So we had Hudson <laughs> Institute. <laughs> It'd be unpredictable, too.